0: Well, hey, how's it? Good morning, church. Uh, Thank you for joining us here at New Hope Community Church. Uh, We're continuing our series on 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 called Stand Firm, and today we're actually going to be talking about what does it mean to live holy lives at the workplace. Last week, we talked about what it means to to live in holiness as citizens of our respected uh, nations and Uh, countries that we live in and today we're going to be talking about following Jesus in the workplace and I entitled my message uh, Christ the example Christ the example and it's from 1st Peter chapter 2 so if you could have your Bibles verses 18 to 25 and as you turn there have you ever noticed that it's easy to do what's right when everything is going right am I right Right. That's to say it's easy to do good when everything around us is going good. When everything is all good in the hood, like Tiger Woods, it's easy to have a good attitude and to do what is right and to do what is good and to do the right thing. It's easy to exercise in the morning when you had a full eight hours of full night's rest uninterrupted, whether you're sleep training, a toddler or your toddler sneaking up in the bed or a baby is sick and throws up all over your bed at three in the morning it's easy to wake up feel refreshed and to go out and go on a run first thing in the morning right um, it's easy to commute to work and have a good attitude when there's no traffic when your 10 mile commute it actually takes 10 minutes It's easy to go to work and work hard and have a good attitude when you got promoted to a higher position with higher pay, and all your coworkers love you and respect you and don't talk negatively about you, and they worship the ground that you walk on. It's easy to do right and love your spouse when you feel respected and valued and heard and seen. It's easy to do good when Um, And to be patient with your kids when they've been kind to one another, when they've been listening, they've been quick to obey, and they are respectful to you. It's easy to be patient with them. It's easy to do right and be kind and respectful to your neighbor when your neighbors are considerate or they're helpful or they don't complain about every little thing. It's easy to be kind and to be nice to them. How about when things are not going well? you see it's natural to do wrong when things are going wrong let me repeat that again it's natural to do wrong when things are going wrong you you see it's a natural response to have a stink attitude when things around you are not going your stinking way right it's hard to exercise when you had three hours of sleep and it's already hot and muggy and you have baby barf all over your clothes um, it's difficult to honor your boss and your work when you've been overlooked underappreciated and mistreated see it's difficult wives to submit to your husband when he's emotionally unavailable and he's been selfish and he's cranky it's difficult to love your wives when your wives have been um, not been submitted and not uh, respectful of your authority and and of the decisions that you made and have circumvented your authority. It's difficult to do what's right when things don't go right. Well, good news for us this morning is that through Jesus, he set an example of suffering unjustly. In other words, through the life, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have to do, we have the power to do right even when things around us are going wrong and so let's turn to first Peter chapter 2 verses 18 to 25 we'll be reading from the ESV version verse 18 says this servants be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And so, Father, we do invite you right now that your presence be with us, that you would uh, turn our hearts, stir our affections towards you right now, Jesus, that we would hunger and thirst after your presence, hunger and thirst after righteousness, because your word promises, for we shall be filled. So Lord, I pray, God, that as you give us a heart to desire after you and to look for you, I pray, oh Lord Jesus, that as your love pursues us, that we would pursue you back. And so Lord, I pray that your word, Lord, uh, will penetrate not only our minds, but also our hearts, that our hearts will be fertile ground to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the main imperative of 1 Peter two eighteen to 25 and the thrust of these uh, seven verses is the command to submit. The command to submit. Remember last week, the word command here or be subject to is the word hupataso, which means to live under control or to live under the order of. And last week, um, Peter talked to us about, hey, we are to submit to um, go under the order or the live under the authority of. The government, every human institution, we must live in subjection and we must submit and we must subject and have this posture of humility. Today, we're going to be talking about having submission in the workplace. So biblically, this uh, text, it addresses that we are to submit ourselves as workers. Now, literally, it says as slaves. Now, this is not the usual word for slave, which is a servant or doulos in the, in the Greek. This is another, another word, which is like a house help. All right. And something that needs to be made explicitly clear is that the Bible does not condone slavery as we know it today. See, um, the new world order of slavery that we know of in America, that's based on racism and prejudice and hatred. Right that did not, that type of slavery was not present in Roman and Greek times. Their whole, actually their whole economic system in Greek and in the Roman world was based on the institution of slavery. You know, some scholars have estimated that one third of the population at the time were slaves. And usually slavery during those times was not a permanent condition of life. Rather, it was a temporary condition and a path towards freedom. So in other words, when people got into debt, they just couldn't declare bankruptcy, right? Michael Scott, I declare bankruptcy. They actually had to indebt themselves into slavery and they paid off their debt for a short period of slavery. And then they were able to buy back or earn back freedom. So in the ancient Near East, in, in Greek and Roman times, many ancient people voluntarily chose to be slaves over Roman citizen, so that when they're granted uh, uh, manumission or, or freedom from slavery, they themselves could become Roman citizens. All right, And so it made a lot of sense back then to be uh, a slave. In fact, one um, of the reasons why Peter and Paul urged Christian slaves to be submissive and obedient was man, if they lived obediently, they could be set free and they could earn their their freedom and they could be Roman citizens and have rights and privileges as citizens of Rome. And uh, slavery back then to be a slave was not assigned to be a specific, especially low class station in life uh slaves back then had status and they had power that was connected to their masters so if their master was powerful they then if you were a slave of that master if you're like a household hand or help you also had inherited that power so in the new testament times it was desirable to be a slave and you know during that time slavery was immensely diverse and during the time that doctors and teachers and writers and accountants and agents and bailiffs and overseers and secretaries and sea captains, they all comprised of the slave population. So it's not what we think of slavery here. It almost it's if we could contextualize, it, it says, hey, workers, all right, employees. Honor your bosses is pretty much what uh, Peter is saying, if we could contextualize this. All right, so. Um, slavery back then is not this evil, racist institution, systemic um, racism that it is as we know it in America and Great Britain. It was completely different, all right, back then. And here's the main point, all right. I just wanted to throw that out there just in case you, you thought that the Bible is condoning or affirming slavery. It's not. The, you know, the most biblical and the most godly men abolished slavery and fought uh, for, against um, slavery and for the abolition of slaves. But here's what I want us to walk away with. Would you write this down? Follow Jesus' example of trusting God when facing unjust suffering. Let me repeat that again. Follow the example of Jesus. Follow Jesus' example of trusting God when we are facing unjust suffering. See, the call to suffering is rooted in following Jesus. That's to say that Jesus suffered and his pattern of life is to become a pattern for us to follow. And at first it wasn't easy for Peter to grasp and to, to understand and to wrestle and to welcome this into his life that to follow Jesus and to, means to follow the cross and the cross is a road paved with suffering. If you look at Peter's own experience with the cross, that the first time he heard of the cross, that Jesus said, hey, the Son of Man must die. He'll be handed over to sinners. He must suffer. What did Peter say? Surely not, Lord, right? In Mark 8, 31, 33, and that's when Jesus had to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan because you want to be powerful. You want to have prominence. You want to have authority. You want us to um, be popular and have Instagram followers. But it's like, no, 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 the, the way to the cross and the way to follow me and disciple, to be a disciple of Jesus, meant that you had to die to yourself. It meant that you had to suffer. It meant that you had to humble yourself, supatasso that you you fall under this order of life. You know, the second time that Peter was introduced by Jesus to this idea of, passion, of, of suffering was during the Passion Week, where, remember, when Jesus was about to suffer and the rooster crowed three times, and what did, Jesus, what did Peter do? He hid because he was ashamed and he could not follow. But listen, because of the resurrection of Jesus and because of the day of Pentecost, When the Holy Spirit poured upon Peter, the cross has not only become a healing instrument by his stripes who are healed in uh, 1 Peter 2.18, but the cross has become a paradigm. It's become a pattern of the Christian experience. The cross has become um, a, a pattern of how we are to live our lives So we're to follow Jesus' example of trusting God as workers, as employees, when facing unjust suffering. Number one, would you write this down, is follow Jesus' example of integrity. Follow Jesus' example of integrity. Let's look at verse 21 to 22. He says, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example. Do you guys catch that? Jesus has set an example so that you might follow in his steps. What is the example that we're to follow in Jesus' steps? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So Peter here, he's setting Jesus as the example of unjust suffering. And what better way to point to Jesus as suffering unjustly to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, right? That Jesus committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Means that Jesus lived with integrity, with wholeness, with completeness. The word integrity, the root word of that is an integer, which is a whole number. It's not fragmented, but it means a wholeness. And Jesus, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, Jesus walked the talk. He walked it. Through his actions, there was no sin. And he also uh, talked the walk, meaning that there was no words of deceit. He did not lie, he, didn't, he wasn't a hypocrite, he did not manipulate the truth, he did not misremember, but he spoke the truth with gentleness and love. Let's look at Isaiah 53, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. And because of this context of working in the workplace, I want to apply this concept of integrity in the workplace. Webster's dictionary defines integrity as an impaired condition. An impaired condition. It means to be sound. And the Hebrew word for integrity is the word tom, which means to be complete. Or to be solid. Remember Psalm seventy-eight, seventy-two. The King David, he led the people of Israel with integrity of heart, with tome, with solid, with sound heart, or complete a heart, or a whole heart. And he led with skillfulness of hands. So integrity at the workplace means that it is completeness and soundness. You have integrity if you complete a job even when no one is looking. You have integrity if you keep your word even when nobody checks up on you. You have integrity if you keep your promises. Integrity means it's the absence of duplicity and it's the opposite of hypocrisy. If you're a person of integrity, you will do what you say what you will what you declare with your mouth you will try and you will do your best with your actions integrity also uh, means there's financial integrity or financial accountability it means personal reliability and a private purity I heard it say that integrity is who you are when no one is watching or when no one is around see you guys A person with integrity does not manipulate others. He or she is not prone to arrogance or self-praise. Integrity even invites constructive and necessary criticism because it applauds accountability. It's sound. It's complete. Integrity is rock-like. Jesus, with his words... He said no words, no deceit was found in his mouth, and he committed no sin. Isaiah 53 says he committed no wrongdoing with his actions. He was whole, he was complete. Integrity won't crack when he has to stand alone, and he won't crumble even though the pressure mounts. Integrity keeps one from fearing the white light of examination or resisting the exacting demands of close scrutiny. It's honesty at all cost. You see, you guys, integrity is having the guts to tell the truth, even though it may hurt to do so. It's having the guts to be honest, even though cheating may bring about a better grade. Integrity is having the guts to quote sources rather than to plagiarize. You know, there's some things that integrity is not. Integrity is not sinless perfection. A person with integrity does not live a life of absolutely free from sin. No one does. Only Jesus does. But one with integrity quickly acknowledges your failure and doesn't hide the wrong. You know, I came across this quote by Bill Russell, a tweet by Marcus Mart during the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. I think it speaks what integrity is. He says integrity, or when you get hired and you get paid $5 of work, $5 a day for work, make sure you put in $7 worth of work. And this is what integrity is at the workplace. Integrity is that you are not, You're serving God with your whole heart, not people pleasing, not to look good in front of the boss, not to look good in front of the supervisors, but to have wholeness and integrity just like Jesus. It means that when no one is looking, that you put in an honest day's worth of work. Then you submit to even when you are mistreated. Remember this whole sermon, right? That it was... I introduced it by saying, you know, it's easy to do things that are right when things are going right. But hey, this is the litmus test of what it means to be a Christ follower. When things are going wrong, when at the workplace you might be underappreciated, at the workplace, you might at, at the office, you might be overlooked, or at home, you're not... Um, appreciated for all that you do, but you still submit, you still fall under the order of, and you still serve wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. So do you want to shock the world? Start here. Start with demonstrating the guts to do what's right, that there is wholeness, an integer. There's there's a, a soundness to your character. In the marketplace, don't lose your credibility at the marketplace. Don't lose your credibility at the office, right? Or at home. Follow the example of Jesus and walk with integrity. No deceit was found in his mouth and he committed no sin. Number two, would you write this in? Is follow Jesus' example of non-retaliation and trust. Follow Jesus' example of non-retaliation and trust. Let's look at verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You guys catch that? He didn't retaliate, the NIV says, when they hurled and when he threw insults at him. He didn't retaliate. Once again here, Peter, he quotes the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Let's look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before cheer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Jesus did not fight words with words. It wasn't an eye for an eye. Oh, you hit my eye, I'm going to hit you in the eye. Oh, you, this, you, you damaged my eye, I'm going to damage your eye. Remember the Beatitudes? It's not an eye for an eye, it's not a tooth for a tooth. Oh, you knocked out my tooth, I'm going to knock out your tooth. You took out my tooth, I will knock out yours. It's none of that. When he was reviled, he did not throw back Vengeance and revile, but he kept his mouth shut. He took it in, even though he was un- it was unjust, even though it was not right. Jesus lived with integrity. He did not retaliate. When Jesus was mocked during the Passion Week, when they blindfolded him, over his eyes and they punched him at different angles. If you're, the prof- if you're a prophet, tell us who punched you. Remember, Jesus could have ordered legions of angels to destroy them, but he did not retaliate. When they tore Jesus' robes, when they pulled on his beard, when, Pilate-ly, when Pilate brazenly told him that, hey, don't you know I have authority over you, Jesus? And Jesus knowing full well that Pilate's very next breath is dependent on the goodness, on the sovereignty of Jesus himself. Pilate did not retaliate or Jesus did not retaliate to Pilate rather when Jesus was scourged 39 times. Could you imagine? Because they said if you whip somebody 40 times, you're going to die. So put him 39 times right at the brink, right at the cusp of death when they scourged him. Jesus did not fight back. Jesus did not, give them, did, did not drive them out and, and whip them himself. When they divided his garments, when the thief mocked him, say, hey, if you're truly God, save yourself and also save us. Jesus lived not only with integrity, but he did not retaliate. See, it's a natural reaction for us to give back what's been given to us, right? Am I right? That, hey, brah, you're rude to me. I'll be rude to you. Oh, you disrespect me. I'll disrespect you. Right? The amount of uh, criticism that you criticize me, I'm going to criticize you back. Oh, the, oh, you judge me. You take that judgment. We, we, we don't put a guard over our hearts, right? Proverbs 4.23, right? Above all else. Guard your heart. We take that in. We let it rot us from the inside out. Oh, you judge me. Now I'm going to judge it back to you. I'm going to judge you back. Oh, you talk stink about me. Oh, you slander me. We let it penetrate our hearts. It fouls up our very whole personhood, our very whole character. And we throw it back and we slander. We talk back about other people. But Jesus did none of that. And twice here in 1 Peter, it says, because this is a gracious thing. It's a gracious thing when the people of God live in holiness and we live in wholeness and integrity, that we practice what we preach and we don't retaliate, but instead we entrust God. And it's so easy for us to to retaliate. He didn't make threats, verse 23 says, when he was insulted. He didn't. You know, I have a friend who was driving one time. It was L.A. traffic. This was a while back, and as he was driving, there was a pedestrian, a, a kind of old um, old man, just crossing the street very gingerly, very slowly. And the person behind was like, "Hey, it's green, it's green. What are you doing? Beep, 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 beep!" You know, and just honking and putting his roll down his windows, throwing his hands up, and just like getting super angry and super mad. And the guy is like, hey, bro, there's, there's a pedestrian He's walking the street. The, the driver behind didn't even realize that there was a pedestrian. he just, beep, 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 and just took off, switched lanes. And as he, as he passed by my friend, he just kind of looked at him and just wanted to make sure, you know, he just give him a stink eye, right, and just mean mug him. For as long as he could so as soon as he passed by and we just looked at him mean mugged him not realizing that there was a stopped car that the light had turned red in front of him and he just got into a big crash I think that's oftentimes what happens when we want to retaliate it's a self-inflicting wound Jesus says hey uh, Romans says that God is the Avenger that he will take vengeance if you retaliate and you, you take things into your own hands and you store up and you unleash your wrath and your vengeance and your anger and your disrespect and all these different things, then you, there's no more room for God to act on your behalf because you have completely done it. The Bible says that is works of the flesh. But it says, not only did Jesus not retaliate, but he entrusted himself. And this word entrust here is the the Greek word uh, paradidomi. And it means to hand over or to convey something to someone, particularly a right or an authority. You hand over your right. You hand over your authority. It's found in Luke chapter 4, verse 6 where Satan tried to tempt Jesus and he says, hey, I've been handed over this authority to give the kingdoms of this world. If you just bow down and worship me, God the Father has allowed me, Satan, to have dominion here on earth, the present evil age. God has given me this authority, so I'm gonna give it to you, Jesus, if you want it. What's my whole point in saying this? I believe this gives us a picture of what it means to entrust God, that we hand over authority. It's like, Lord, this is my every right. I have every right to take vengeance. I have every right to fight back. I have every right to um, be, to disrespect, give disrespect, which has been given unto me. Lord, I have every right, every authority, every power to retaliate, to revile evil for evil, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but Lord, I'm gonna surrender this and I'm gonna entrust you. And I love this is in the Greek that it's an imperfect verb. It's not like a punctil, it's not a past tense verb that Jesus just did it one time. It says that he, it's almost, he continued to entrust himself and continued to humble himself, continued to um, hand over and to give. Uh, entitlement and authority and power. He entrusted himself. So Jesus, he did not retaliate, but he handed it over to the father. And we'll close with verse 24 to 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you think about this passage, according to Peter, the purpose of, not, of the cross is not just forgiveness of sins. It says that Jesus bore our sins in his body so that what? twofold purpose, we might die to sin So it's not passive, but it's an active, dying to sin, dying to pride, dying to entitlement, dying to uh, anger. And we might live to righteousness. See, the purpose of the cross is not just passive forgiveness, but an active dying to sin and living for righteousness. And it says here that you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned. To the shepherd, the word shepherd there is poimain, where we get the word pastor and uh, overseer, episkopos, where we get the elder that Jesus is the pastor, ultimate pastor, that he's the head of the church. And when you and I, when we believe in Jesus, we have been healed by the stripes that Jesus borne his back, you have been healed from retaliation. That you, once you strayed away, where you wanted to retaliate and you wanted to take vengeance and take action. But Jesus says, hey, you've been by the stripes that he bore on his back, we have been healed. And so let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning, O God. And we do ask right now, Lord, you see us where we're at. Your word says in First Chronicles 16, 9, that the eyes of the Lord, it looks to and fro the earth. And so, Lord, you see our hearts, you see where we're at. You see the unjust situation that we're living through. Lord, you see in the workplace where we might be overlooked, where we might be underappreciated, where we might be underpaid, where uh, we might be mistreated. Yet, Lord, we continue to live with integrity. So, Lord, I pray, Father, that we would follow the example of Jesus, that we would follow your integrity with not only our actions, Lord, but also with our words and even our thought life, O Lord Jesus. I pray that we surrender, Lord, any sense of injustice, Lord, lay them down at the footstool of the cross. And we ask right now for your Holy Spirit power and strength that not only we live with integrity, O Lord God, but Lord, that we would not retaliate, but Lord, we would entrust you. We would hand over and give over authority and entitlement and privilege and power and surrender it to you because you judge justly. And so, Father, I pray, O oh Lord God, that your presence go before us, that your favor be upon us so that we could be marked as a people of God. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. I hope to see you guys next Sunday for Graduation Sunday. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord give you peace. We love you guys. Have an amazing week. Take care.